When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this episode of Newt's World, I've been an avid reader of Stephen Hunter's books for many years following closely the lives of his characters, Vietnam War veteran and sniper Bob Lee Swagger, his father Earl Swagger, a legendary Marine in World War II, and Bob's son, Ray Cruz. And the last time we spoke was when he released his last novel, Targeted, a year ago. And he talked about working on his new novel, The Bullet Garden, an Earl Swagger novel. He sent me an early copy of the book, which I read immediately, and I've been looking forward to talking with him about it ever since. So I'm really pleased to welcome back my guest and somebody who I've come to consider a friend just because he's so creative and so fascinating a person, Stephen Hunter. He's written over 20 novels. He's the retired chief film critic for the Washington Post, where he won the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Criticism. He's also published two collections of film criticism and a nonfiction work, American Gunfight. Steve, welcome and thank you for joining me again on Newt's World. Well, thank you so much, Newt, for your enthusiasm for my work. It's one of the things I look forward to on nights when the book isn't going too well. I'm thinking, I can't let Newt down, so here I am. (laughs) That's the spirit. Now, before we dive into the new novel, which I think may have been as complicated as anything you've written, and I'm really looking forward to discussing it, but I do have to ask you, since you were the film critic for both the Baltimore Sun and then the Washington Post for years and Oscar nominations have just been announced, do you still pay attention to movies and watch a lot of them? No, I pay attention to movies as long as they were made before 1960. The modern film, now and then one will break through my reluctance and I'll go see a movie. I went and saw Babylon, for example. I saw a very good movie called Old Henry. I go to the movies and I watch new movies very, very seldom. And that's what retirement is all about. Let's talk about The Bullet Garden. Here, 
you tell a story of Marine Gunnery Sergeant Earl Swagger during World War II, but you move him because most of his career, of course, is in the Pacific. So what made you decide to go back to Swagger as the main character in a book which takes place in Normandy? Partly the challenge. I thought it would be great fun. Partly, I really liked the plot of this book, and it allowed me to wallow in certain of my obsessions like World War II. And the fact that Earl was in the Marine Corps was awkward, but it seemed like it was solvable. And in fact, there were a few Marines attached to OSS who served in the European Theater of Operations, the most famous of them being the actor Sterling Hayden who was a Marine officer, but because he was such a gifted small boat sailor, he was recruited by OSS, and he spent the war delivering partisan supplies in the Adriatic Sea. So there was some loose precedent. I also, I like the idea of a Marine in the Army, because it allowed me to play a lot of jokes and to have some fun and to, you know, see what Earl is going through with regard to dealing with army culture and how he's got to handle that as opposed to marine culture. And it was just a challenge. And it was a lot of fun, I have to tell you. Well, I mean, it's interesting because you get into all of these kind of cross-geography and cross-cultural things, and then you make them even more complicated because you get us involved in London with the OSS while also getting us involved in Normandy with what was, I didn't realize until I read your book, that this was a real problem. And you comment that the idea about the book came from a discussion about something that had happened historically in Normandy. Well, I love to set the books against history for a number of reasons. Number one, they organize the book. I mean, you know what happened big on what date. So you have to steer the book in that direction. And then you have to steer it towards another one. Number two is, this makes me sound callous, but I've always loved World War II, particularly in European theater. And it was a chance to return. My first book, The Master Sniper, 43 years ago, was set there. And it allowed me to pick up some of those older characters and finish some of those stories that I had left unfinished, both in that book and in subsequent short stories that I had written. And the whole thing was just like a return home for me. And I mean, I hope I have proven that you can go home again. Maybe you can't, but I sure tried. The whole notion of the way in which the hedgerows actually facilitated sniping. Yeah, it was an extraordinary landmark. It was one of the great intelligence failures by the United States in World War II, and that our war planners had no imagination for the landscape. And they were completely unprepared. And suddenly they found themselves in this spectacularly arranged, and someone called it, a general who served, said it was like a thousand Guadalcanals. It was like a jungle warfare, although the jungles were contained in the hedgerows, which were eight foot tall, almost impenetrable vegetable and mineral fences that cut the land up into small postage stamp shaped meadows and getting through them without getting killed was really tough. And it took us three months. It cost us a great many casualties. It was essentially a holding strategy by the Germans that enabled them to get a lot of people out of there that otherwise might have been 
caught behind lines while we were trying to encircle them, which was, of course, the classic battle maneuver of World War II. I mean, all in all, it was a disaster, and it just took a long time for us to work out a strategy for dealing with the issues. And I played with that. I can't say everything I wrote was absolutely factual, but I think in terms of the milieu, in terms of the despair, in terms of the casualties, in terms of the landscape, I got it quite correctly. I'm curious, because this is something you've written about very widely, and I would say you're probably the leading writer on sniping. For some reason, the sniper elicits a level of hatred that, say, the machine gunner doesn't seem to elicit, even though the machine gunner probably kills a lot more people. And as you pointed out, you were triggered in part because General Omar Bradley got so angry that at one point he wanted to order that all of the snipers that they could capture would be killed on the spot. And they talked him out of it. It would would have been, you know, clearly a war crime. But what is there, do you think, that makes the sniper so much greater feared and more emotional? I think it's the intimacy. He sees your face. He sees whether you shaved or not that morning. He sees if you're scared or if you're bold or if you're strong or if you're weak. It's like he's right next door to you. And there's something totally unsettling about that. He also sees you, unlike modern war, which is machines against machines with poor human beings caught in the middle. This is definitely the most intimate form of killing next to, say, the bayonet, and that he's up close. If you're in his scope, it's like he's in your pocket. And that somehow has a psychological weight that is uniquely heavy. And soldiers find that much more difficult to deal with strategically or in terms of morale than they might otherwise. I'm not saying they don't mind getting killed by machine guns, but at least getting killed by machine guns feels like war and you can adjust to the realities of war. Getting killed by a sniper feels like murder and nobody wants to be murdered. There's just some higher moral and spiritual weight that just attends to the sniper and the sniper's predations. Despite the fact that we hated the German snipers, didn't we have a fair amount of sniping on our side? Oh, of course we did. Everybody snipes. As usual, between the wars, there's no money for sniper training. And so, I mean, the same pattern is repeated over and over again. We go to war and suddenly we're being sniped. They say the best thing to stop a sniper is to have another sniper. So we have to gear up a sniper training program and we have to acquire sniper ordnance. And we did it in World War One. We did it in World War Two. We did it in Korea and we did it in Vietnam. We were just slow off the starting line and sniper war. And we had to make quick adjustments to that reality. And indeed, eventually, but not initially, we did feel snipers because we want their soldiers to feel that same unease and morale-crunching pressure that the sniper brings to bear. So when you think of it that way, to use the title of your very first book, The Master Sniper, you have people like Matthaus Hetzenauer who killed 345 men on the Soviet front. You had Joseph Sepp Allerberger, who shot and killed 257 men. Did we have anything comparable to that in terms of our snipers' effectiveness? I mean, the Russian front is somewhat unique in war in that they were in combat 
for three solid years every day. I mean, it was like a job, not a campaign. Whereas in Americans, there were lots of times when we were not fighting aggressively. You know, it was definitely a start and stop kind of effort. And so we never had men who were exposed to combat long enough to acquire, you know, 300 kills, as some of these Germans did. And the Russians had snipers, too, that had many hundreds of kills. Just because the conflict, as intense as it was, wasn't as continuous, wasn't straight line through. And no sniper hero was credited on our side by World War II, because I think that indicates our sort of unease with the snipers. And it really wasn't until Vietnam that we began to rehabilitate the sniper. And it was Carlos Hothcock, the great Marine sniper, who first attracted public attention. Someone wrote an interesting biography of him called Marine Sniper. It was sold and sold and sold. It's quite a good book, even if I suspect that it's a little embellished. But at any rate, sort of the idea of the sniper as a hero and possibly a tragic character, that didn't emerge until Carlos Hathcock. And with all due respect, I think that I had a lot to do with that. I think one of the things the Bob Lee Swagger books have done is they have normalized the act of sniping in war, and it made us understand what great soldiers these guys have to be to do this and how mentally tough they have to be to do this. And as in Russia, you know, they're on duty every night. They're not just waiting for the next attack. They're always out there, they're always hunting, and they're always being hunted. And it was in Vietnam that we really, turns out that Carlos Hathcock was not the biggest sniper. There was someone else emerged later in the war with more kills, and it became respectable at that point in time. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.
as you were setting up this whole story, was the term, the bullet garden, was that actually a term from the period or is that something you made up? That was something entirely that I made up. And I wish I had acknowledged that in the acknowledgements. I needed something vivid. Generally, it's called the bocage. That's French for brush. And that's how they describe that section of Normandy, the landscape. So there was a thought I had for a while that I would call the book bocage, but no one is going to respond to that. And Bullet Garden just occurred to me one night, and I liked it very much. And so I decided to enter it into the English language. So that's my one contribution to the lexicon, and it's entirely fictional. I had some modest knowledge about sniping in World War II, but nothing on the scale, of course, that you have. But the reason I think this is in some ways your most complicated book is you have two different parallel London stories. At the same time that you have this amazingly complex story in Normandy, and you have a Marine who's now working with the Army and all that that implies, and you have the OSS who are sort of dubious. I mean, the OSS is never fully accepted by anybody except Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You have more things swirling in this book. There's a lot of moving parts. I acknowledge that. And one of my jobs is to keep that more or less clear or at least keep you so fascinated that you will continue to read until it becomes clear. You know, history will judge whether I brought that off or not. It just sort of seemed to multiply on itself. It was like some kind of strange infection that kept spreading. And I ended up, when I was done with it, I was astounded to realize that it was much more or as much a book of London as it was of Normandy. And I, for some reason... London in wartime is fascinating. 40 miles would separate men fighting and dying from people at swanky parties. And that contrast is sort of between the decadent and the heroic and between the political and the literal. Well, that was fascinating to me. And I just love to play those games and move these guys from one universe into another universe. And you do it vividly. I've always thought that movies, for example, that take place in London during the war, there's something fascinating about the way in which the British, A, were drowning in Americans, and B, were just sort of living through the war. Life went on. People continued to you know, go to dances and have drinks and talk in the evening. And Exactly. And most of the restaurants stayed open, and most of the nightlife kept going. All the little worlds, once they found their war footing, continued to evolve and develop. And there were all kinds of, you know, little subgroups in London, political and sexual and military and completely oblivious. And again, evoking that was so much fun. I just really enjoyed that. And intellectual, literary intellectual, there was a very vivid group of intellectuals in London during the war. And they all wrote bitingly satirical and acidic essays and memoirs about that. I have one of the heroes of the book is George Orwell, who puts in a small uh, appearance late in the book. And Hemingway was there. All the New York radio writers and magazine writers were there. Hemingway's two wives were there one of whom was a much better war correspondent than he was. You know, and there were all kinds of debauched American aristocrats walking around thinking that they were important, thinking they were more important than the GIs. 
And just as a social tapestry, it was just evoking it was, as I say, enormous fun. And I hope to give my readers a taste of that fun. Well, look, I mean, I think that piece of it is fascinating. But then in addition, you get into a question about finding exactly the right gun. That's exactly right, yeah. Explain for a second, in the way you're setting this up, why did they need exactly the right gun? I think it's the nature of the enterprise, which has very little room for error, and yet there were a lot of errors. And a lot of the things they tried worked, and a lot of the things they tried didn't work. When you look back on the war, you'll find specific problems and specific solutions on all sides. But what history doesn't tell us much about is all the failures, all the times that things were done to counter certain situations that failed utterly. It wasn't a steady march to triumph. It was a really stop and go, start and stop, trial and error kind of thing. Things worked out. Sometimes they didn't. One of the things, for example, that people don't know, and I'm thinking about doing a book about this, was that in April of 44, the U.S. and the Brits decided to hold a rehearsal for the invasion. And they held it on the Devon or the Devon coastline in a place called Slapton Sands. And at the last moment, someone said, you know, it'd be more realistic if we fired live shells over the heads of the troopers who were landing on this English beach. And someone thought that was a good idea. What could go wrong? Well, what went wrong was not only to kill a thousand men, but German e-boats somehow, I don't know if they were alerted, if there was an intelligence failure or if it was just coincidence, German PT boats attacked this mock invasion and sank a whole bunch of, of ships. And it was one of the great disgraces of the war. And of course, it was covered up. And the thousand men that were killed those losses were folded into the Normandy losses so that the government never had to say, oh, by the way, we had a rehearsal and we killed a thousand men with friendly fire. It's just, as I say, the trial and error. And when you make an error in war, it's a big error and people die. I mean, one of the things which I think creates a interesting kind of distinction for your writing, the American way of war normally is sheer scale. Eisenhower designed Normandy so that we were throwing so many different forces in so many different ways that something was going to stick. And yet sniping is, in fact, a very disciplined, very focused, almost elegant activity. So the difference between the normal American way of war and what Swagger's doing is sort of breathtaking. Well, that's true. And there's always an argument in military circles between the theoretical and the practical. And the people at headquarters are brilliant and they come up with amazing plans. But the poor guys in the field have to try and implement those plans. And as they say, confusion in combat is normal. So there's such a gap between what is expected and what happens. And unfortunately, because it's all politicized, Careers rise and fall based on whether or not these stratagems pay off. And when they don't pay off, there are penalties to be paid. And so if you look at particularly, you know, in any general staff in war, you'll see people's careers soar or disappear. 
you know, and it's just a very tough environment to make a living in, though it's a great opportunity. At least from the writer's point of view, from outside, it's just fabulously interesting. And it's very provocative. And what I need to do this work is something provoking my imagination. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I get a sense that you get excited writing and having the vision in your head show up on paper. That is one of the great pleasures of it. And again, in writing novels, confusion is normal. You start out with certain ideas and they just don't pan out and you've got to invent other ideas. You find yourself in emergency situations where something you thought was obvious isn't obvious. You've got to go back and figure out what you did wrong. And it's the same sort of ad hoc trial and error, improvisational thing you go through that they went through. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's one of the things I'm trying to get across to my good friends up on the hill right now, that it's not that everything's going to work, but that you've got to have a resilience to come back. Exactly. Getting up the next morning is maybe the strongest talent anyone who strives can have. It's okay to get depressed when you fail, but you still got to go back and do it again the next day. I don't know if I said this the last time we were together, but you have Ray Cruz, the great-grandson of the original Swagger. You have him basically at the Mall of the Americas in a remarkable contemporary book. Oh, well, thank you. And one in which elegance does matter because he's the only guy inside and the only guy who can take out the bad guys. I just wanted you to know, I was actually at the Mall a couple of weeks ago. I couldn't help but think about your book. I think that's one of your best books. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, that was a great deal of fun. The problem with it, though, was that about halfway through it, I came up with the idea for the third bullet. And I wanted to write that book even more. 
So I said, okay, either abandon soft target or finish it really fast. And I chose the second one. So it could have been a little bit more polished, I'm afraid to say. But again, as we've been discussing, things happen, you deal with them, and you keep going. I remember the last time we talked, you said that you really always wanted to write a Western. Do you see the swaggers out West as part of your future? I do. I've actually considered it. It's probably not going to happen. I'm working now on a series of novellas, and it'll be three swaggers and three different generations in the 1930s, the 1940s, and in current time. And because those stories are short, they can't be complicated or shorter. And those three stories very much have Western structures. The name of the book is Lone Gunman. And they're always about a lone gunman coming to a corrupt town and straightening things out, you know, which is the classic Western formula. And they will probably be as close to a Western as I can get. Not quite Shane territory, but one of them has a lot of cows in it. I won't tell you how I got so many cows into it. In fact, it basically takes place in mud and cattle byproduct, if you know what I mean, and I think you do, and in corrals, and that was fun too. Well, I, I hope when the novellas come out that you'll join me, but I have to ask you, in your mind, before they get to Arkansas, where do the swaggers come from? They've been in Arkansas since 1780, They are direct descendants of the great Scottish soldier, Patrick Ferguson, who is noted as being the best rifle shot of the 18th century. And by some complicated political machinations, his impregnated wife fled the British and with a new man went to Arkansas. And so what we're seeing is the playing out genetically of the Ferguson line of genes. He was a very brave, very bold, extraordinary soldier, probably the most heroic soldier in the British. That's a remnant of a novel that I never wrote. You do have that story in a novel. That story is included in Targeted. I'm looking forward very much for your next book. I can recommend wholeheartedly The Bullet Garden, which people are going to find is endlessly interesting and has enough different subplots that they will not at any point want to put it down. I encourage all of our listeners to buy a copy. And then if you haven't read Steve's other novels, start with this one because it helps him currently. But then go back and start with The Master Sniper. I've read every single one of your novels. And I found all of them fascinating and all of them naturally build on each other and create a fascinating genre, if you will. We're going to have a link to all of your books, including The Bullet Garden, on our show page at newtsworld.com. And I really want to thank you once again for taking the time to share with me both the book, but also your creativity and how you think about these things. Well, thank you very much for having me. And it's too much of a pleasure for me to yak about myself. And you let me indulge us. My wife won't let me do this. So I look forward to this as therapy, if nothing else. Thank you to my guest, Stephen Hunter. You can get a link to buy his new Earl Swagger novel, The Bullet Garden, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. 
and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.